0: And it usually works, (laughs) so I didn't have to hit it with a hammer. Now, our text today, if you have a Bible and would like to turn to uh, Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13, it's on um, page 1004, and we're starting from verse 13, and I'll read that to us. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you that we are gathered here in your presence to worship you and to grow in our relationship with you. And I just pray now, Lord, for all that um, we say and sing and read and hear here today, that all that is not of you would fall away, but all that is of you would remain. In Jesus' name, amen. Richard asked me to come to speak today about good news for failures. Yeah. So when he first sent me this uh, subject and the passage about Levi's call to follow Jesus, my immediate thought was that it was a bit of a gift of a title for a sermon, good news for failures. But as the day got closer, I found myself struggling with what to say. I found myself reading all sorts of articles on failure and on success. I listened to J.K. Rowling's fabulous speech at the Harvard graduation ceremony on why failure has meant so much to her. I read quotes after quotes about failure and how it breeds success. And here's just a few that I found on the way, some of which I think you've probably heard before. Albert Einstein there's a clever man anyone who ever who never made a mistake never tried anything new Thomas Edison what did he no was it the lighthouse lighthouse electricity something oh dear showing my ignorance anyway thomas edison i have not failed i have just found 10000 ways which don't work churchill success is not final failure is not fatal It is the courage to continue that counts. Lance Armstrong, pain is temporary, quitting lasts forever. (laughs) Marilyn Monroe, just because you fail once doesn't mean you're going to fail at everything. Very wise. And Ed Sheeran, I can't tell you the key to success, but the key to failure is trying to please everyone. In fact, if you put quotes on failure into Google, you get 33 pages of them. Lots of people seem to have lots to say about failure and how it can help us. And of course, being recognising and being willing to admit our failures can motivate us. It can motivate us to find depths of strength that we didn't know we had. Clearly, if we are open to it, we can learn from our mistakes and perseverance is a good thing. Though it has to be said that sometimes it's good to know when to quit. For example, me giving up learning to play the cello was a distinct gift to my good husband Malcolm and to our neighbours. But in science, failure is an essential part of the process of discovery. Both Edison and Einstein learnt what worked from experiments that failed. I don't have any quarrel with that, but I was beginning to feel a little bit like I was purely on a self-help quest with my next stop, lunch with Oprah. Because as inspirational and as true as many of these quotes are, I don't think they give us the whole picture on how we feel about failure or success in our ordinary and everyday lives. How many of you are familiar with the TED Talks on the internet? A few of you have seen them. If not, I would recommend Googling them and having a little search around. There's some great stuff in there. But there's one in particular by a social researcher, a lady called Brené Brown who gave a talk on the power of vulnerability and the problem of shame. A talk which, much to her surprise, went viral. It's worth a listen to. But in the book, which followed on from her TED talk, Brenny Brown talks about our culture in the West today as being a culture of scarcity. Her view is that we have a problem, an endemic problem, of never enough. And if you'll bear with me, I'd like to share just a little bit of what she says. It's quite a long quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but um, bear with me. She says, It only takes a few seconds before people fill in the blank from their own tapes in the never blank enough sentence. Never good enough. Never powerful enough. Never clever enough. Never thin enough. Never safe enough. Never rich enough never strong enough, never disciplined enough, just never enough. For me, and here she's quoting another author, Lynn Twist, and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. Many of us spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with the litany of what we didn't get. Or didn't get done that day. Brown goes on to say that what makes this constant assessing and comparing so self-defeating is that we are often, even subconsciously, comparing our lives, our marriages, our families and our communities to unattainable media-driven visions of perfection. Or we're holding up our own reality against our own fictional account of how great someone else has it or perhaps even how great it used to be in the good old days. And making these kind of comparisons inevitably leads to a distorted picture of failure and success. So what on earth all of this got to do with Levi? Levi was a Jewish man working probably for Herod Antipas, who was an unpopular ruler who sided with the occupying Roman forces. Levi's job in the toll booth probably made him good money, but not very many friends. Sitting in his little tax-collecting booth, day after day in the heat, Levi was a Jew on the outside of Judaism. He was, in the eyes of his community, a notorious sinner, an outcast and excluded. As a tax collector, he was part of a particularly despised group, not only viewed as collaborating with the occupiers, but as ritually unclean from dealing with Gentiles and automatically assumed to be greedy and corrupt. Can't have been a very fulfilling job, being constantly abused by those around you. I think Levi must have had the skin of a rhinoceros. And I wonder if we could ask Levi today what his never enough word would be. In the eyes of the religious leaders of the day, Levi had failed. He had failed to be a good Jew. He'd failed to be a good citizen. He'd failed to be a good example to others, to be honest, to have any integrity. The list could go on. Now, of course, Levi may not have cared two hoots about any of this. But I think that his response to Jesus tells us something different Jesus sees him and asks him to follow, and Levi does exactly that. In Jesus, he's found someone who loves him and accepts him, and instead of shouting at him or criticising him or telling him he isn't good enough or telling him that he's a disgrace to the Jewish faith and that he ought to be ashamed of himself, Jesus offers Levi none of that. Time and time again, what Jesus says and does provokes, it disturbs, it challenges. Jesus demonstrates that the values of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, are values which shatter boundaries between people, boundaries which divide and exclude, which create sometimes blatantly, but often subconsciously, an in-crowd of the successful and the sorted and an outcrowd of the not-so-sorted who are deemed to have failed in any one of a myriad of self-imposed ways. Not only do we put others in these categories, but all too often, to our cost, we put ourselves in them too. The religious leaders of the day, of Jesus' day, wanted to exclude and to judge Levi and Jesus' remarks to them at the end of our passage about those who are well, needing no physician, are, I think, meant rather ironically. The people who think they are well are just as much in need of a physician as we all are, but they don't see it and they don't want it. But getting back to Levi, Jesus opens his arms and says to Levi, come on in. Instead of condemnation, Levi is offered compassion, love and grace. It's not that Jesus doesn't care if Levi is being corrupt. It's just that he loves him first. Not only did Levi follow Jesus, but many others did too. And they met together that evening, probably in Levi's house, where they shared a meal together. And Levi, who seems also to have been known as Matthew, Became one of the twelve, and quite probably the writer of Matthew's Gospel. And as I read and reread this short story about Jesus' call to Levi to follow him, I was drawn time and time again to one little word right in the middle of the passage, and that word is the word saw. Quite simply, Jesus saw Levi. Or to put it another way, Levi knew that Jesus had seen him. He'd been seen, really seen, by his creator, who knew him before he was born and loves him exactly as he is. Levi knew that he was loved, despite his failures or his successes. A connection had been made between Jesus and between Levi that went right to Levi's heart because Levi recognized that Jesus loved him and he understood that crucial call, which is a call for all our lives before anything else, to know that we are a much loved child of God. This outweighs our failures, it outweighs our successes, it outweighs our jobs, it outweighs our fears, it outweighs everything. God's love for us is unconditional. We are worthy of his love exactly as we are. His love thought us into being before we were born. I find that just extraordinary, that God imagined me. Ali, before I was born, and he loves me despite whatever I think about myself, whether that's good or otherwise. He loves me despite what other people might think of me, good or otherwise. And he loves me no matter what I get wrong or what I get right. No matter what my successes are or what my failures are. He loves me. The writer Brennan Manning, who is the author of a wonderful little book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which I'd highly recommend people to read, says this. The sorrow of God lies in our fear of him, our fear of life and our fear of ourselves. He anguishes over our self-absorption and our self-sufficiency. God's sorrow lies in our refusal to approach him when we have sinned and failed. We all get things wrong. We all make mistakes, both big and little. We know this is true. And so the good news for failures is, of course, good news for all of us. That God sees us as we truly are and loves us. And he doesn't judge my or your successes or my or your failures the way the world does or the way we judge ourselves or others. There is no never enough sentence when it comes to God's love for us. There is just the free gift of unconditional love and forgiveness. His love changes us from the inside out. There are no strings attached because Jesus has already seen to that on the cross. We just need to let down the barriers enough to recognise our need and to say yes. Amen.